0: Um, understanding Jesus' work, prophet, priest, and king. Last time we talked about the person of Jesus Christ, um, what he does and who he is. We talked about his humiliation and his exaltation. His humiliation, of course, is the period of time when he refrained from the full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor, which is a long way of saying that he basically hid the fact that he is God. Then his exaltation is when he again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. And he continues to do that for the good of his church and to the glory of his name from, um, from his resurrection and through eternity. Tonight, lesson five, understanding Jesus' work as prophet, priest, and king. Um, if you're following along in your workbook, at the top of the page, you see the second article of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten, of the father from eternity and also true man born of the virgin mary is my lord he has redeemed me a lost and condemned creature purchased and won me from all sins from death and from the power of the devil not with gold or silver but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death all this he did that i should be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness innocence and blessedness just as he has risen from death and lives and rules eternally this is most certainly true. So that second portion of the Apostles' Creed, what we call the second article of the Apostles Creed, um, talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so tonight we will be we'll be starting in Deuteronomy chapter eighteen, um, beginning particularly in verse fifteen. God promises a prophet greater than Moses. And we'll have to go to There we are, Deuteronomy 18, if you're following along in your paper Bible, or in your electronic Bible, there we are, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything that I command him. That is Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. Here we go. Shrink it down just a little bit. And what we really see here from, from this selection is that bullet point on your, on your uh, book. First of all, that God promised his people another prophet, like Moses, who would speak God's word. So number one, after God freed the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, Moses led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. People begged God not to speak to them directly because they knew that sinners cannot be in God's presence. So Moses also served as a prophet for the people. What things would a prophet do? Looking especially at verses 15 and 16 and verse 18. Back here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And the point there in verses 15 and 16 is that the people are terrified of hearing the voice of God speak from Mount Horeb. And so God is going to have this prophet kind of be the go-between, kind of be the, the mouthpiece, the one who is going to announce to the people what God says. And that's exactly what God says here. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything that I command him. God says that the prophet's words are going to be God's own words. All right, which takes us back to our question. What things would a prophet do? Well, the prophet would receive God's word, and the prophet would share it. Shrink that down a little bit, too. That's number one, which gets to our... um, There's another another passage here from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, in our auxiliary passages, right over here. The word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. But I said, Ah, Lord God, I really do not know how to speak. I am only a child. The Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone to whom I send you, and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, because I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Zoom in just a little bit there. Excellent. So we see the work of the prophet, that the prophet is speaking for God, and um, and he doesn't have an option to not speak for God and still remain a faithful prophet. Which gets our, our key term, uh, prophet, um, simply one who speaks God's word. Prophets weren't always, and very often did not, speak about future events. There were probably a lot more prophets at work during, in the land of Israel than we hear about recorded in the Bible. Um, we hear about schools of the prophets. If you think of Elisha and Elijah, as Elijah is being, going to be taken up to heaven soon, they visit the schools of the prophets in the various areas. Um, there were probably a lot more prophets than we hear about recorded for us, but those prophets by and large would mainly be expounding and explaining and applying God's word to the people in a regular like everyday worship service kind of a way. Number two, though Jesus is God, listening to him was different than speaking face to face with God on Mount Sinai because he had set aside the full use of his power and glory for a time. That's what we talked about last time. The difference between Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation, he refrained from the full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. Exaltation, he again makes full and frequent use. Um, Read John 6 verses 66 through 69 and Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. As a prophet, what sort of things would Jesus tell people about? All right. Here we are. John 6, after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and were not walking anymore. So Jesus asked the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Isaiah 61, verses one through three. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, A cloak of praise instead of a faint spirit so that they will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the lord to display his beauty so our question as a prophet what sort of things would jesus tell people about well as a prophet jesus tells them that he is the savior that everyone needs um when we talk about prophets remember you know we're talking about speaking god's word we're talking about applying god's word And Jesus is being truthful. He is being the ultimate prophet. (laughs) When he says he applies God's word and all the Old Testament prophecies to himself. And he carries out exactly what they need. And then he explains it and applies it for them. So how does Jesus serve as a prophet through us, even today? Um, The two bullet points at the top of the page. uh, We're going to be looking at Luke 2, verses 8 through First of all, the angels were sent with a message of good news for everyone. That's gonna We'll see that in verse 9. And then the shepherds, in turn, share the good news with everyone that they met. Because Jesus, um, during his ministry, he carried out that work of prophecy by going from village to village, by preaching. But he continues to carry out that work even today through you and me, through his church, his people. Um, this might sound familiar. It's from Christmas Eve. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So we see in verse 9, the angel appears to them. And the angel was initially sent to bring good news of great joy. And as a result, the shepherds said let's go and see what what god has told us about today guess we got ahead of ourselves just a little bit when the shepherds heard the news that jesus had been born what did what did they do well they went to see let's go to bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the lord has told us about they went to see the fulfillment of god's promise And we're kind of in their same shoes, same sandals, even though we are far removed from them in time and in, in distance. But where do we find the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to us? You and I can't physically go to a manger in Bethlehem and find an infant Jesus right there. But where do we find the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to us in his word? and that word finds its fulfillment also in our lives that there are old testament prophecies even being fulfilled still today old testament prophecies about nations far far away from israel being brought to worship this king of israel And that is still fulfilled even now um, as you and I, who are nations far removed from Old Testament Israel in every way, in time and in distance, as we come together and in spirit to worship that same Jesus, the same King of Israel. We may not, number five, we may not have seen angels in the sky, but we have a source just as reliable, the Bible. Read Matthew 5 verses 14 through 16, Acts 1, and Matthew 28. And I would say we have a, a source that is even more reliable, right? Because those shepherds may have said, well, maybe maybe it was just last night's chili was giving me bad dreams, or I took an Ambien before I went to sleep, and that was a bad idea. Um, but you have the external objective, you know, unchanging word of God, and you can see it there printed on the page. Anyway, what does God instruct us to do with what we have heard and seen? If we go over to our supplemental passages here, we'll be looking at Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine in people's presence, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, is in heaven. And our next one is at the top of this column, Acts 1 verse verse 8, 8b, which just means um, if you're looking at the second half of a verse, you know, verse, you know, 8a, first half of the verse, 8b is the second half of the verse. Um, Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's try 250, that's awesome, and Matthew 28. Jesus approached and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples from all nations, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to keep all the instructions I have given you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I mentioned this in one of our previous videos that we're using a relatively new translation and, um, and by and large it is very well done. Um, but this is one of the passages that should have been translated a little bit differently because the word that they put into English here as gather um, is not that's not what the verb says in Greek. Um, I expect it to be updated in the next couple of years and adjusted to more better (laughs) or to better reflect the Greek text. Anyway, um, what does God instruct us to do with what we have heard and seen? Go and make disciples. Um, And how do we do that? By baptizing them and by teaching them. And uh, previous to that, witnesses for Jesus. He doesn't call you to be his attorney to argue people into faith. He doesn't call you to um, be a debater and to debate people. He calls you to simply talk about and speak to what it is that you have heard and seen. So number five, well, we live according to what God says in his word as as a fruit of our faith to bring glory to God. um, And we speak of that. We speak of the the blessings that Jesus has won for us. Number six, the shepherds noted that what they saw and heard was exactly as they had been told. Why can we, we be confident of the truth of everything written in the Bible? Remember that term verbal inspiration from lesson one? Well, we have the word of God, that every word of the Bible is from God and it is true. So it is trustworthy. So it shouldn't be a surprise to those, those, um, those shepherds that, that God had kept his word. In what ways can we go and share the news about Jesus? Well, we can tell people what Jesus has done for them. We can support mission work. Um, and I'd probably add just a little bit here. Well, just a second think about this you can tell people what jesus has done for them you can support mission work um or you can that's that's part of being a participant in our congregation that we are working together to bring the the life of jesus to somebody else because resurrection is a place where the life of jesus meets yours that word resurrection refers to the fact that jesus literally rose from the dead in a glorified way with his exact same body all right and so You know, it's how do you communicate that concept of resurrection to a world that doesn't know the idea of resurrection. And I like to summarize it as, well, resurrection basically means life. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that this is the place where the life of Jesus meets yours. And so we work together to bring the life of Jesus to, um, to others in our community. You know we're the place where life of jesus meets yours bringing life to to marriage and family and community that's kind of our goal that's what we want to do and we want to um we want to do that however we can in a lot of cases it's simply texting somebody this is more more often than not um you text a friend and say hey i heard i heard you're having a baby do you have do you have a church home do you have a place where that child can be baptized Um, it might be, it might be just a simple conversation and say, do you mind if it sounds like you're going through a lot? Um, do you want my pastor to give you a call? The answer here that we have on the screen for verse number seven looks so difficult and daunting and nebulous. Um, but it's actually day to day. It's pretty simple to say, I have a church home where I have a pastor who knows my name and I have people there who care about me. And I want you to have that too, because the life of Jesus has made a difference in my life too, okay? Number eight, read 1 Peter 3, verse 15. What are some opportunities you might have to share your faith? There we are, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Regard the Lord the Christ as holy in your hearts always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. And so you kind of work backward. What is the, the hope that you have? Well, it, there's definitely a sense of joyful optimism, even in the midst of, of stress. Sure. <laughs> there's, an, there's the realization that Jesus has promised you everything grounded in the forgiveness of sins, and that forgiveness is yours, and that you have life forever with him. Um, definitely. There's a even a realistic understanding of human nature that you as a Christian have that other people don't have. And so their expectations are higher for other people. And you can say, well, people are sinful. And my expectations really aren't that high. But I have a Jesus who has come for me anyway. Or maybe it's something as simple and even as basic as as having enough guidance from the Word of God that you know what matters most in this life. And you've got some of those basics figured out, like what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? How do I act as a, as a good parent, or a good child, or spouse, or whatever the case may be? And you've got, you've got that laid out for you in Scripture. Um, as, and, and it's a joyful thing for you and for me. Other people will see that. And to be able to say, yeah, my Lord has told me these things and I have a church home here that, that talks about these things. Would you like to join with them? And you know, we can watch it on YouTube or, or we've got church coming up this Sunday. Um, anything like that. Like how, what are some opportunities you might have to share your faith? Um, answers might vary on this one. You can think for yourself. Who is it that you know who needs a good dose of hope? that you know that doesn't know Jesus? And sharing your faith might be as simple as saying, come and see, come and see for yourself. Number nine, John chapter one, verses 45 and 46, takes us to the time when Jesus was calling his first disciples. What can we learn from Philip when we want to share Jesus with somebody else? Almost like pastor got ahead of us again. John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophet also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, Philip told him. So look at the example that Philip sets. He doesn't get into an argument. Um, yes, yeah, something good can come from Nazareth. No, he just says, well, come and see. Come and see. He is a witness. And uh, you and I, what can we learn from Philip? That simple, come and see, is, is really easy to say. Um, come and see, and come and meet the Jesus who matters so much to me. Um, come and see, and you know, join in through Zoom, or come and see, just participate through YouTube, or something like that. Come and see this Jesus. So there we ta- we've we talked about Jesus as our prophet, um, he is the fulfillment of the prophet that Moses had talked about, where he preached during his earthly ministry, and he proclaimed that word of God and himself as the fulfillment. And even today, he continues to carry out that prof- prophetic ministry when Christians hear that word of God and listen to that word of God, and even share that word of God. And so Jesus can continue to carry out his prophetic work, his work as the the prophet <laughs> through you and through me, as we talk about that word of God. Our next section, John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18, and then 28 through 30. John 19, beginning in verse 16. Let's see. Make sure. Good. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And then scrolling down just a little bit, um, beginning in verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so we see here, uh, from this reading that Jesus served as our high priest by offering the sacrifice for sin. And so the first question, the obvious question is, well, what does a priest do? A um, priest was the one who would go between God and the people. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and those sacrifices would be a picture of the eventual sacrifice of Jesus that would take away sin. And that picture it would would comfort the people with the announcement of forgiveness, that, that their sin was forgiven on the basis of the perfect Lamb of God who would shed his blood for them. So number 10, easy peasy breezy What problem made sacrifices by Old Testament priests necessary? Well, the problem was sin. We're dealing with actual sin. We're dealing with people who have broken what God commanded, who have done what he said not to do, when who have not done what he said that they should do. Um, that's you and me talking about sin. Um, and Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 4 is kind of in the supplemental passages here, talking about these Old Testament priests. To be sure, every high priest is chosen from the people, and is appointed to represent the people in the things pertaining to god so that he may offer gifts as well as sacrifices for sins he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also weak in many ways and for this reason he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for the people no one takes this honor on himself but he is called by god just as aaron was and so what does a priest do he represents the people before God, and he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, So sacrifices to atone for sin and to proclaim to the people the coming forgiveness of sin. And he also brings their gifts, their offerings to the Lord, because um, that's what we do, because we give glory to God by giving him a portion, returning to him a portion of what he has given to us. So that is primarily the work of the priest. And that's kind of our definition here. Um, The key term priest, one who is selected as a go-between, between between God and the people, and he offers sacrifices and praise for the people. And so in that sense, um, the priest and the prophet are similar. The the prophet deals with the word of God. He proclaims to the people what God has said, Um, and the priest, is also kind of a go-between, where he represents the people before God, and he represents God to the people when we're talking about sin. So he represents the people to God as they come before him and, and they confess that they have sinned, and, um, and the priest hears their confession and symbolically transfers that guilt to an animal, uh, a sheep or a goat, and then that animal is slaughtered. And the people see that their sin required the shedding of blood. And then that priest proclaims what God has declared, that sin is forgiven. For them, especially in the Old Testament, that sin was forgiven on the basis of the Messiah. And that sacrifice that the priest sacrificed was a picture of the coming Messiah and what that Messiah would do, that he would be a sacrifice. So a priest, one selected to go between God and the people by offering sacrifices and praying for the people. Number 11, read Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. Why weren't these sacrifices able to fix the problem of sin? Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4, excuse me. The law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the actual realization of those things. It will never be able to make perfect those who continually offer the same sacrifices year after year. If it could do this, would they not have stopped bringing sacrifices? Because the worshippers, once they were cleansed, would no longer have had bad conscience about sin. Instead, these sacrifices reminded them of their sins year after year just a second, we'll scroll down here. The fact is that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So there must be something else going on here, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, as God says, because it can't take away our guilt. Um, Because that that animal was not living under the laws, the same as you and I. That that animal could not offer its life to cover our life, and both to pay for the bad and to give us the good. Right? So, number 12. The sacrifices the Old Testament priests offered didn't solve the problem for sin. Instead, they served as a reminder for the people. What did the sacrifices remind the people about? Well, that they were sinners and they needed a Savior who would die for them and that that Savior actually would. He would be coming. They were, But they were a daily reminder of sin because the way God had it set up and the way God designed it was, it really demonstrated that you cannot remain good enough for God all the time. You cannot remain holy enough to be in God's presence on your own merit. Um, but that but that everything that you do, no matter where you live, or no matter if it's something that just happened to you, or something that you did on purpose, um, all these things are sin that separates us from our God. And the big big major lesson is that yes, there were sinners, and yes, they needed a savior who would die for them. And the promise is that that savior would come and die for them, and they could go home with that knowledge of forgiveness. Number 13, we needed a different sacrifice to actually take away sin. We needed something greater than animal sacrifices. Read John 1, verse 29, and Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. How did God provide what we needed? Here we are. John 1, verse 29. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, Be imitators of God as his dearly loved children, and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So our question, um, how did God provide what we needed? God provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world takes away the sin of you and me. And Christ gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, That's a very intense image that Christ gave himself as the sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice. There we are. Number 13. um, He sent Jesus the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that that God demanded. Number 14. What we read from John chapter 19 gave us a close-up view of Jesus' sacrifice. It wasn't offered on an altar like Israel's animal sacrifices. Where did Jesus offer the once-for-all sacrifice for sin? From your own memory, um, maybe from what we just read, or even from the imagery in our sanctuary at church. Where where did Jesus offer that once-for-all sacrifice? On the cross, on Good Friday. uh, He was crucified, and there he was nailed to the cross. And yeah, you could say in a sense that that is the altar where the perfect sacrifice was sacrificed. Number 15. Read Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 46, which is another account of Jesus' crucifixion. As bad as the physical pain associated with crucifixion was, what caused even greater torment for Jesus? Matthew twenty-seven forty-five and 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the sixth hour um, is noon, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. There is darkness over all the land, and Jesus cries out in Aramaic, which is the language that he spoke, "Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there we see that Jesus is suffering the pain of hell. He is physically there on the cross, but spiritually, God has turned his back and has poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. All of his wrath against sin has been poured out on Jesus. And so Jesus cries out in, in agony and because he's suffering the spiritual agony of hell. He is suffering um, the reality of being abandoned by God, um, of having God's loving presence taken away from him. And all he under, all he sees is God's holiness, justice, and wrath. That's pretty intense. And for that period of time, he suffered the pain of hell. And that suffering um, was for you and for me. And through that suffering, we've been set free. Number 16, why did Jesus endure the suffering of hell? Ephesians two verses one, two, and three. Here we are. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked when you followed the ways of this present world. You were following the ruler of the domain of the air, the spirit now at work in the people who disobey. Formerly, we all lived among them in the passions of our sinful flesh, as we carried out the desires of the sinful flesh and its thoughts. Like all the others, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. This is important. Why did Jesus endure the suffering of hell? First of all, Paul is speaking to Christians here in, in the city of Ephesus. He says, you were dead. Um, dead people can make no approach to our God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Even though, you know, as a, as a baby or as a person, when you're a little bit older, an older person rather, um, you're walking around or you know, the baby is giggling and happy and, and smiling and adorable, um, but spiritually dead because that is our natural state. That is the natural state of everyone who is, is born into this world, is spiritually dead. And God must be the one who gives them spiritual life through his, through his word. Um, what, what about the rest? We formerly walked in that evil. We were following the ruler of the domain of the air, which is talking about the devil, the spirit at work in the people who disobey. So we were dead in sin, we were following what the devil wanted, Uh, we lived among them, so we were slaves to our sinful desires, um, as we carried out the desires of the sinful flesh, and like all the others, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. By our very nature, simply on the basis of who we are, we were born into this world under God's condemnation. It's not like God says, all right, I'm going to start you at 100%, and it's up to you to lose it. That's what he said to Adam and Eve, and they lost that holiness, and they lost that righteousness. And ever since then, every single person born into the world is at zero. Absolute F, failure, dead, blind, enemy of God, under the power of the devil and following the devil's work. Oh my goodness. So why did Jesus endure the suffering of hell? Well, that's reality. That's what our sins deserved. And we need to we need to comprehend that fact. That's what God that's what God says. That God is serious about this. Number 17. We need never doubt that Jesus actually forgave our sins. What did Jesus say in verse 30? That assures you that your sin is completely forgiven. That's back here in John chapter 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Um, so he says here in verse 30, it is finished. He's not talking about the drink being finished. He's talking about suffering for sin being finished. And the word that he says here, the word that we have um, recorded for us in Greek in John chapter 19 is... Um, tetelestai. (laughs) There's our free for nothing tonight. The Greek word tetelestai, um, which, okay, whatever, Pastor Hagen. It's, why it's important is that's the word that a merchant would write at the bottom of a bill that had been finally paid up. So you buy something and you didn't have your credit card along, but you say, well, I'm good for it. Down and run a tab and I'll come back and pay for it. And when you did come back and pay for it, then he wrote at the bottom, he or she, you know, the merchant would write at the bottom, Tetelestai. Um, same thing in our retail industry, um, you would have a, maybe PIF, paid in full. That's exactly what that word was used for. And so Jesus says it is paid in full. Um, all the suffering for sin has been completed, and, uh, and all the, the payment for sin has been finished. Awesome. And if all sin has been suffered for, and the payment has been completely finished, then there is nothing else to 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 have the forgiveness of sins. So that kind of leads us to a series of key terms here at the bottom of the page. God's Word uses a variety of pictures to describe Jesus' work of paying the price for our sins, the following key terms summarize three of those pictures. Our first key term is atone or atonement. And this is a word that was made up <laughs> because English didn't have didn't have a, a sufficient word to describe this concept that we have in Greek. And the Greek concept is that two parties who are separated are now set at one. And it was actually a Bible translation up with this idea well what can i what word can i use to describe two parties being set at one at one Hmm. how about that at one we'll just we'll just pronounce it a little bit differently we'll pronounce it atone. and that's what we have here to make a payment that puts god and sinful people back at one with each other it covers over sin all right our next key term to redeem means to buy back or to pay a ransom price. This is just different ways that we talk about the same objective reality, the same unchanging reality that sin has been atoned for, that Jesus died to pay the punishment for sin and his death and resurrection means your forgiveness. So redeem, to buy back or to pay a ransom price. That term justify, or which the noun is justification means to declare not guilty. So when you say that, um, I'm justified in Jesus, what you mean is that God has declared you to be not guilty. It is totally external to you. It is a righteousness that has been applied to you. It is a verdict that God has pronounced over you. It has nothing to do with your life change. You don't need to prove your forgiveness by what you do. Um, you are forgiven already, the personal work of Jesus Christ. You are justified. Um, God has declared you to be not guilty. Number 18. Getting on to the next page. Read Romans 3 verses 22 through 24, John 3 verses 16 and 17, and Romans 5 verse 18. How many people's sins did Jesus pay for when he died? to our supplemental verses here. Romans 3 22 through 24. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and over all who believe. In fact, there is no difference because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Um, Specifically, verse 23 we have this simple sentence, or the simple clause, all have sinned, period. And that word, all, is going to be our noun for all fall short. And that same word, all, is going to be our noun, all are justified. John 3, verses 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then finally, Romans 5, verse 18, Just as one trespass led to a verdict of condemnation for all people, so also one right verdict led to life-giving justification for all people. A life-giving declaration of not guilty, justification. So pretty straightforward, I think, after that, hopefully. Um, How many people's sins did Jesus pay for when he died? All people. Every person you'll ever meet, every person you'll never meet, Jesus paid for all sin. Not just for the sin of believers, not just for the sins of the Israelites, not just for the sins of the people who are pretty good, but not the people who are really bad. Um, Paid for all sin. So who's left out? Nobody. But tragically, um, unbelief forfeits that. (laughs) If a person never hears about Jesus dying for their sin, then it does them no good. It's the same as, um, as there being a cure for cancer. And if you have cancer, but you never hear about this cure, and that cure is never applied to you, um, then you'll still die of cancer, even though there is a cure that exists. All right, number 19, which is our key term, our next key term, general justification or objective justification. Um, because of Jesus' death, God has forgiven the sins of the entire world. And this is the fact that, you know, basically, yeah, I don't know how else to put that. That's pretty simple and straightforward. Because of Jesus' death, resurrection, God has forgiven the sins of all people. Tragically, some still forfeit that through their unbelief. Number 19, Jesus served as priest when he offered himself as a sacrifice to forgive our sins. Read 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2. And Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. How does he still serve as a priest for us today? Alright, we'll go over, and we'll scroll up here. John 2, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, namely, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. So we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. We have. This is an ongoing reality, even still today. And Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring in accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, was raised to life, is the one who is at God's right hand and who is also interceding for us. So Christ Jesus is at his right hand and is interceding for us. So how does he still serve as a priest for us today? Remember that a priest, if you think back to the definition we just had on the previous page, priest is one selected to go between God and the by offering sacrifices and praying for the people. And so Jesus prays for forgiveness because of his death on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross, his sacrificial death. Um, He points to that as the basis for our forgiveness, even still today. And on, your, on that page in your workbook, um, you have a nice little diagram there. It talked about Christ's work, um, his, the work of redemption. Remember that word, redeem, to buy back? Um, so Jesus' work of redemption means that he has paid the ransom to free us. The price was his holy, precious blood as the God-man. He is both God and man, 100% God, 100% man, and that price was his innocent suffering and death. That he wasn't dying for himself, but he had a perfect record, and he carried your sin and mine as our substitute. The result is that sin has been taken away. We are not under the guilt of sin. We are not being punished for it. Uh, Death has been defeated. There is no punishment in hell that awaits you no eternal death that awaits you. And there is the promise of resurrection after your death in this life. And finally, the result over the devil is that he no longer has the same power in his temptation, that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under his authority and in his kingdom, so to speak. But you've been set free from that and free from his accusations. So that even if he were to say, well, but Pastor Hagen, you're a sinner. (laughs) And I could say, yeah, but what of it? Jesus died and rose for me. And so that means God has declared me to be righteous. (laughs) So I've got your accusation doesn't stick because is your accusation actually stronger than what God says in his word? Absolutely not. (laughs) Take your, take your words somewhere else, but they don't, they don't work here. So far so good. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com or 419-262-8280. Finally, so we've seen Jesus as our prophet, where he he preached the word. Um, we've seen Jesus, G- and he continues to carry out that preaching work through his day. We've seen Jesus as our priest, where he is the go-between. He offered a sacrifice, and he continues to intercede on our behalf and point to that sacrifice. And now his third activity, or his third duty, the the third task that he carried out and continues to carry out, is Jesus as our shepherd king, as our perfect king. Um, This will be in John chapter 10, I think it was. Yep, John ten verses one through eighteen, and the the summary points at the very top of your workbook. Jesus compared his work to that of a shepherd, because he takes care of all the needs of his flock. And we read, "I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep." I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. All right. So far, so good. Jesus compared his work to that of a shepherd because he takes care of all the needs of his flock. Jesus, our shepherd king. What was a shepherd's job? Easy peasy, lemon breezy. There it is on your screen. <laughs> the sheep. Um, if you're not going to do that, then you're not a very good shepherd. Now are you? And uh, yeah, he cares for the sheep. Speaking number number 21, question number 21. Speaking to his Jewish disciples, Jesus said that he had sheep that were not part of the current sheep pen. I have sheep that are not of the sheep pen. By that, he meant that some who were not Jewish would follow the good shepherd, which is to mean uh, believe in Jesus and be saved. What did we need our good shepherd Jesus to do for us? Well, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and so we needed a shepherd who would die for us. And he did that for you and for me. Number 22. A shepherd might endanger his own life even to the point of dying in order to protect his sheep. As our shepherd, Jesus would lay down his life for us. What was unique about Jesus' work as our shepherd? Verse 18. We'll go back to that. There we are. Verse 18. What was unique about Jesus and his dying? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father." And so what was unique about Jesus' work as our shepherd? He would not stay dead. Um, and you'll notice here that he's not killed. He lays down his life for the sheep as the death that our sin demanded. And yet he would not stay dead. He takes up his life again. God often referred to kings. Number 23. God often referred to kings as shepherds of his people. Read Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. How is the work of a king similar to the work of a shepherd? Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. Then God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. He brought him from following the mother's sheep to shepherd his people, Jacob, and his possession, Israel. So he shepherded them with a sincere heart, and with skillful hands he led them. This David we're talking about is like David and Goliath, the second king of Israel. The first king was King Saul and then King David was the second king of Israel. And David is this beautiful picture. I mean, he's you know he's a decent king, obviously, but he's also a picture of the eventual King Jesus, um, the perfect shepherd king of spiritual Israel. How was is the work of a king similar to the work of the shepherd? Well, a king guarded and protected his people, just like a shepherd did for the sheep, which is our key term. A king is a person chosen to lead and protect a group of people. Got just a little bit more to go tonight. This is a little bit longer section. Um, We're talking about the three duties or tasks that Jesus carries out. The task of prophet and priest and king. Read 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Timothy 1, and 1 John 3, verse 8, part B. How did Jesus serve as our king? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so he fought the battle and he won the victory over sin, death, and the devil. 2 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10, God saved us and called us to calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, and it has now been revealed through the appearance of Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus abolished death. He, again, yes, won the victory over death. And 1 John 3, verse 8b This is why the Son of God appeared, to destroy the work of the devil. And so he fought against the devil and he defeated him. When Jesus, how did Jesus serve as our King during his earthly ministry? When Jesus died and rose, he defeated our enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And that gets us to, I believe our final section for tonight. That's how Jesus was our King. But how does he serve as our king today? How does he rule and guard and protect his people? Uh, We'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. As our king, Jesus rules all things for us. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 18. Read through verse 23. I pray also that the eyes of your heart be lightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, And appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way i think verse 22 is going to be the most important or the most pertinent part right now Um, although there might be a little bit more obviously god placed all things under his feet that he has authority over all things and appointed jesus to be head over everything for the church in other words appointed jesus to be king For the church, for the benefit of his people. So, number 25, what is the hope to which God has called us? That was in verse 18. The, there we are, sorry, it's, there we are. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What does that mean? Well, the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God, and eternal life, all those blessings, all bound up together. Because where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Verse 26, or number 26, sorry. (laughs) When Paul said that Jesus is above every other power and authority, he was describing Jesus' position as king now, after his resurrection and ascension, during his state of exaltation when he, again, makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor that Jesus is acting on our behalf. How does he serve as our king today? Verses 22 and 23. That's the one that we just looked at. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the good of the church. He rules and works all things for all. There we are. we had a little bit of an interruption with the zoom there. Um, And hopefully, hopefully we'll just pick up where we left off. Uh, Number 27. Read Matthew 26 verses 62 through 64 and Revelation 1 verse 7. In the end, when will Jesus be clearly revealed as the king of all? Matthew 26, beginning in verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Have you no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I place you under oath by the living... the youngest day, as the old German scholars used to call it. Revelation 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the nations of the earth will mourn because of him. Yes, amen. So every person will see him when he returns on the last day. What will Jesus do as king on that day? From 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Look, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So when he returns at the end of time, he was going to raise all people from the dead. Uh, terrifying thought for the unbeliever, a joyful thought for the believer. Awesome. <laughs> Lots to look forward to. The best fireworks to display of all time. <laughs> Number 19. What else will Jesus do on that day? Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. I think that's in this same document. Yes. Here we are, beginning right here. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes with all of his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Just scroll down a little bit there. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was lacking clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or lacking clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or is and visit you the king will answer them amen i tell you just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers of mine you did it for me scroll down a little bit more beginning in verse 41. then he will say to those on his left depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels for i was hungry and you did not give me food to eat I was thirsty, and you did not give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, lacking clothes, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not take care of me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or lacking clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not serve you? Picking up in verse 45, At that time he will answer them, Amen, I tell you, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, You did not do it for me. And they will go away to, we'll scroll back up here, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Pretty intense image there, picture for us of what the last day, judgment day is going to be like. Number, verse number 29, question number 29, what else will Jesus do on that day after raising all the dead? He is going to bring believers to heaven and send unbelievers to hell. Um, Plain and simple. (laughs) And this is, there's no, there's nothing that's too drawn out about this. We'll get to this in a later lesson, I'm sure. But there are a lot of misconceptions about what judgment day and the last day is going to be like. It's pretty straightforward. that we are living in the, in the last days now. We are living during the time of what they call the Great Tribulation, on the basis of the book of Revelation. That time when um, it looks like unbelievers will persecute God's church and kill God's people. It is a time of suffering. Um, and then Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna raise all the dead. We're gonna stand before him in judgment. And on the basis of the faith, there's going the faith that we have or we don't have, um, he is going to separate us into believers and unbelievers. And then, there, exactly as we saw pictured for us in Matthew 25, there, after he has separated believers and unbelievers, he is going to hold up the deeds of believers as proof that his judgment is just, and the lack of deeds of the unbelievers as proof that his judgment, yes, is just. Which gets to our key term, Judgment Day. The day that come at an unknown time when Jesus will return to bring believers to heaven and sentence unbelievers to hell. That is um, also known as the last day. So when will that day come? Matthew twenty four verse thirty six. Jesus said no one knows when that day or hour will be, not the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. And the important thing to keep to understand here, Jesus isn't saying that he is less than the Father, um, but he is at this time currently in his state of humiliation. And so he has chosen to not know when judgment day is because during his state of humiliation, he is purposely refraining from using his divine power, glory, and honor. Right? that same definition after his resurrection after he became alive again um, Jesus again chooses to know that day but during the time of his ministry he has he ha- had chosen to not know um, chosen to not not use his power in that regard but he is certainly co-equal and co-eternal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not a ranking or a hierarchy. All three persons um, are equal together. When will that day come? Well, only God knows. We are to be ready. Number 31. After we're in heaven, what will Jesus do for us as our King read Revelation 7 verses 16 and 17 this is our last one tonight um, or today whatever we have to be watching this a little bit longer lesson but there's a lot that we covered one of the elders in John's vision said they will never be hungry or thirsty ever again talking about believers in heaven the Sun will never beat upon them nor will any scorching heat for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, after we are in heaven, what will Jesus do for us as our King? Well, He will always take care of us. And so, the image that we have um, at the bottom on uh, these two pages reminder that the unbeliever they die, uh, their body decays, their soul is in hell, and the last day their body will be raised, and their soul will be raised and reunited with their body, and they will be sent to eternal torment in hell. Um, That is, you know, burning in a great fire forever and ever, always dying but never dead, um, and cast out from the loving presence of God under God's wrath for all eternity. There's no end to it, and that's horrible. Uh, For the believer, at your, your death, is a separation of body and soul. The body is placed in the ground, or it decays, or it's cremated, or whatever the case may be. The soul is in heaven. At the last day, the body will be reconstituted and raised and glorified, the exact same body, um, but without sin. And the soul will be reunited with the body. And then we'll enjoy the eternal joy of heaven, body and soul, um, including rest from all our labor, rest from trouble, rest from sorrow and pleasure to be with god and in glory with our fellow believers and then finally in summary the other diagram um, below question number 31 talking about christ's office or his duties his tasks he was anointed by god as prophet priest and king the old testament prophet would teach god's word the good news and christ fulfilled that by teaching god's word and by continuing to speak through believers. The Old Testament priest would represent the people and sacrifice, offer a sacrifice for sin. Christ was our priest as he represented the world and, repre- and sacrificed himself as for the sin of all. And he continues to be our priest as he serves as a mediator between us and God. These are the tasks or the duties that he carries out as prophet, priest, and then king. The Old Testament king would fight for the people and he would rule the people and Christ our king has won the victory and rules in our hearts and he rules over all things. Connection questions. I will leave these up to you and we'll review them at the beginning of our lesson next time. You've got your homework there. Um, to review this content in your catechism and review those terms. And, um, and that is pretty much going to summarize it. If you have any other questions, comments, concerns, contact me, Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com. Or if you're listening through the podcast, you can also contact us at rwjpodcast at gmail.com, um, or contact me directly 419 268 I think that is everything. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a good evening.